Hey, everyone. It's Vanessa, and I'm here to talk to you about Noom. Noom is a personalized weight loss plan. It's not just one size fits all. It takes into account your dietary restrictions, your medical issues, and any other personal needs. It's like a psychology plan. Just it meets you where you are. And it also recognizes that losing weight is really a mental process. It starts with your motivation and with your brain. Noom's approach is also grounded in science. They've published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles that describe their methods and effectiveness. So stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. You can sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes. It's available to buy now wherever books are sold. Campsite Media. In the aftermath of 9-11 and the anthrax attacks, fear had become a part of everyday life. Before you left the house, you were sort of expected to check the weather, listen to the traffic report, and check Homeland Security's color-coded threat level chart, which went from a cool green low to a blood-red severe. SNL got in on the joke. I wish to announce that on the basis of a change in the nature of Al-Qaeda chatter, we are changing the current threat level to magenta. <laughs> Let me repeat, the threat level is now magenta. This moment was perfect for the George W. Bush administration to push an item on their agenda that they'd been sitting on for years, a war with Iraq. Debbie's cabinet was largely made up of holdovers from his father's presidency a decade earlier. Cold warriors hungry for a new fight, or rather, an old, unsettled one. Back in the early 90s, George H.W. Bush had faced off with Saddam Hussein in Kuwait, but had stopped short of marching troops to Baghdad. This was his son's chance to finish the job. He doesn't believe in the worth of each individual. He doesn't believe in public dissent. The White House seemed hell-bent on invasion. In the last week, millions of Americans have gathered together to protest the impending war with Iraq. Listen, protesters, I got news for you. Bush is ignoring France, Germany, China, and Russia. He's definitely not going to listen to some white kid with dreadlocks banging on his frat buddy's bongo drum. <laughs> some journalists tried putting the screws to the White House, demanding evidence for their claims. There are reports that there is no evidence of a direct link between Baghdad and some of these terrorist organizations. They were met with absurd answers and evasions, like this legendary line from Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. There are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. <laughs> Excuse me, but is this an unknown unknown? Uh, I'm not... Several unknowns, and I'm, I'm just wondering I'm not this going, is an unknown I'm not going to say which it is. But skepticism was in short supply in the press corps, and many other journalists did their best to turn known unknowns into known knowns. And Judy Miller led the pack, because she was about to go to Iraq to find those WMDs herself. From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Infamous. I'm Gabriel Sherman, and this is the second episode of a three-part series, Little Miss Runamuck, 
You say your behavior was poor. Some people would say it was disgraceful. I take the threat very seriously. I take the fact that he develops weapons of mass destruction very seriously. There's a much bigger story here about the Iraq war itself, but this episode is going to really be about the connection between media and war. Because the selling of war is always an essential part. So we're going to be getting really deep into the ethics and politics of that and how it intersected with Judy Miller. In late 2002, the Department of Defense set up a brand new program in anticipation of the Iraq invasion. They would allow journalists to embed with troops on the front lines of the conflict. And Jill Abramson, as head of the D.C. Bureau, was going to be the one deciding which journalists got the passes. The Times was given, you know, I think about 15 uh, places to be embedded with the military before the invasion of Iraq and the bombing of Iraq began. Judith Miller's audiobook again. I was not on Jill Abramson's list of reporters from the Washington Bureau she led. Neither the Foreign Desk nor the Washington Bureau had selected me. She wasn't, no. Because she told me she was making, quote-unquote, her own arrangements. She was going to—she was implying—I I, I think it was clear to me that she was talking to um, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld herself and that she would be taken care of. Judith didn't want just any old embed. Nope. She wanted to patrol with the crew that was actually looking for the WMDs. And just as Jill suspected, Judy was going to make that request at the highest level with Mr. Known Unknown himself, Donald Rumsfeld. When a senior Pentagon official asked me to inscribe a copy of germs to Defense Secretary Rumsfeld, I attached a letter to the man I had never met asking to embed in the WMD hunting units. I heard nothing. In early January, if WMD were found in Iraq, I wrote, the presence of an independent journalist with the American team could only enhance the administration's credibility. I heard nothing. While Judy waited for an answer, the White House got busy bolstering the case for an invasion. You can't let the world's worst leaders blackmail, threaten, hold freedom-loving nations hostage with the world's worst weapons. In late January 2003 at the Capitol, President Bush strode through a joint session of Congress shaking hands along the way. Bush looked around with his classic Alfred E. Newman shit-eating grin. Our intelligence sources tell us that he has attempted to purchase high-strength aluminum tubes suitable for nuclear weapons production. Saddam Hussein has not credibly explained these activities. He clearly has much to hide. By this time, the debate around the aluminum tubes was very much out in the open, and foreign governments were skeptical of supporting an invasion. But W was on a warpath, and the tubes were the closest thing he had to a justification. Lacking a smoking gun in early February 2003, 
Colin Powell spoke for more than an hour before the UN Security Council. Saddam Hussein is determined to get his hands on a nuclear bomb. He is so determined that he has made repeated covert attempts to acquire high-specification aluminum tubes from 11 different countries, even after inspections resumed. Whether or not the tubes really presented a threat, they were now part of the official line at the highest level. Behind W, behind Powell, was Dick Cheney. Remember, he was not only Secretary of Defense under Bush Sr., but he was the former CEO of Halliburton, an oil drilling company that stood to gain immensely from a war in Iraq. He was the great architect of the war and the patron saint of used car salesmen. Let me turn to the issue of Iraq. You have said that it poses a mortal threat to the United States. How? Define mortal threat. Well, you deal with Saddam Hussein, his refusal to comply with the UN Security Council resolutions. If you look at the extent to which he has aggressively sought to acquire chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons over the years, the fact that he has previously used them, he used uh, chemical weapons both against the Kurds and against the Iranians during the 1980s, the fact that he has twice invaded his neighbors, Uh, he's launched ballistic missiles against four of his neighbors over the years, there's a, a pattern and a track record there that one has to be concerned about. By this time, Judith was already in Iraq, hunkered down. She was biding her time, waiting for her permission to embed. Finally, in late February 2003, she received a phone call. It was the Pentagon. My request for an embed had been granted. While the 75th Brigade had already left for Kuwait, I was to tell no one about this except my direct supervisors. Now all I had to do was persuade my editors to let me go. Judith wrote her editors in New York. It was the story of a lifetime and the access Judith would be granted from the military was unprecedented. I have now, looking back on it, reservations about the whole embed program that was run by the Pentagon. She was even wearing a uniform as she she embedded herself with this WMD hunting unit. Judith says the commander of the unit required her to wear a camouflage jacket and khaki pants. But strangely enough, not a helmet. A reporter in civilian clothes was a natural target, he said. But even more egregious than the uniforms was the editorial control that the military had over the journalists in its embed program. I would not be allowed to publish material that jeopardized operational security. And the Pentagon would insist on the right to review copy before it was filed, a requirement for all embedded reporters in sensitive posts. I see the embed program looking back as the Bush administration exploiting a moment where everyone in the country felt we are in this together. It made us dependent on the military, who were in essence protecting our lives, to cover the war. And, you know, I, 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 I don't think That was wise, looking back. Maybe Judy was blind to the ethical concerns. Or maybe she thought it was simply a necessary cost to cover the most important story of the era. Such access in Iraq would enable us to tell a rich story of a great challenge comprehensively and with nuance, I wrote. We should not have been 
as directly beholden to the military. We, we kind of became part of the war planning. More after the break. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. All the meals are chef-crafted, dietitian approved they're always fresh, never frozen, and unbelievably, they're ready to go in just two minutes. You've got more than 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. That's not including any of the 60-plus add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. That's right, no dishes. And they're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime, like if you decide to go on vacation or something. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get off to your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash infamous50 and use code infamous50 to get 50% off. That's code infamous50 at factormeals.com slash infamous50 to get 50% off. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town. To The Swan, where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, Comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently, The Big Flop looked at The Swan, a competition show between women who are hoping to transform their physical appearance. The problem? The women were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. It all led to trauma for the contestants and terrible reviews. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus. You're listening to Infamous from Campside Media. This is the day that the Pentagon hoped to instill, quote, shock and awe on the Iraqi military in order to facilitate uh, its desire to surrender. Wolf? Judith was embedded with Mobile Exploration Team Alpha, one of the units tasked with hunting for WMDs. Judith followed soldiers sneaking in and out of abandoned buildings and sheds in the villages of Iraq. But as the search wore on, expectations lowered. I had stopped carrying my gas mask. So had other members of Met Units Alpha and Bravo, both of which were led by enthusiastic young officers, still hoping that any day now we would find traces of the elusive WMD that had brought us all here. Elusive was a kind way of putting it. Two weeks into the war, Judy said the military had searched fewer than a dozen of the several hundred suspected WMD sites and hadn't uncovered any illegal weapons. The slam dunk that the CIA director had promised seemed more like a brick. Then there was a tip, a handwritten letter on a crumpled single sheet of paper. The letter was tantalizing, identifying himself as Fadl Abbas al-Husseini 
a chemist who claimed to have worked in secret labs. He asserted that stocks of chemical weapons had been destroyed. Judy piled into a Humvee and headed off to stake out the tipster's house. She waited in the vehicle while officers went in to talk to him. He was wearing sunglasses and a baseball cap the soldiers had given him as a disguise. He led them to what he said were banned equipment and samples of chemicals he had buried in his backyard and elsewhere. He claimed to have worked part-time in a lab in a warehouse on the outskirts of Baghdad. He had been trained as a scientist, as he had initially told the soldiers the next day. He was also a military intelligence officer who had overseen part of his agency's chemical program. Judith was determined to write about it. The story hit the front page on April 21st, 2003, and Judy started touring the media. New York Times correspondent Judith Miller joins us now by phone south of Baghdad. Judith Miller, welcome back to the program. She called into the news hour with Jim Lair. Has the unit you've been traveling with found any proof of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? Well, I think they found something more than a, quote, smoking gun. What they found is what is being called here by the members of Met Alpha, that's Mobile Exploitation Team Alpha. Um, what they found is a a silver bullet. One of Judy's most misguided stories was, you know, uh, this ridiculous story about an unnamed source wearing a baseball hat who was hunting for WMD. And it was like a Eureka, we found it story. What was perhaps most alarming was Judy's admission that she was not permitted to interview the tipster or visit his home, and that her story had been vetted by military officials prior to publication. It was super controversial and much written about. Critics wrote all sorts of headlines about whether the New York Times was changing the rules of journalism or flacking for the military. Reporters inside the Times were also raising a stink. One of her colleagues told the media that Judy's story was, quote, wacky-assed and they had real questions about why it was on the front page. It turned out, after much U.N. inspection and other inspection, to be, you know, hogwash. And I thought, you know, I really don't like the way we're doing the news here. I didn't like having a whole new reporting structure uh, superimposed on the Washington Bureau, and I was worried about some of the coverage, as well I should have been. I actually seriously considered leaving, and then just as I was about to to go, uh, a, an unrelated to Iraq or Judy Miller scandal erupted. The whole newsroom, including and especially New York, like just rose up in horror over this. More after the break. Hey, it's Payne. And I'm here to tell you that we're back with a brand new season of Up and Vanished, called Up and Vanished in the Midnight Sun. In this newest season of Up and Vanished, I'm investigating an unsolved missing persons case in Nome, Alaska, on the edge of the Arctic Circle. 
Florence Okpialik, an Alaska native, was last seen on August 31st, 2020. And I've spent the last year in Alaska trying to find out what happened to her, putting myself in the most dangerous positions I've ever been in. You don't want to miss this brand new season of Up and Vanished. It is by far the most intense investigation I've ever been a part of. From Tenderfoot TV, Up and Vanished in the Midnight Sun is available right now. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Infamous from Campside Media. Despite how swimmingly the hunt for WMDs was going in Iraq, the Times called Judy back to the States. Whether it was Judy's choice or whether the Baghdad Bureau had enough of her reporting is up to interpretation. But the fact was, the WMD story seemed like bunk. But just as she landed in New York, the Times was facing one of the biggest public scandals in its history, and it had nothing to do with Iraq. A reporter for perhaps the most prestigious newspaper in the country, plagiarizing and fabricating dozens of articles. A young reporter named Jason Blair had been copying other reporters' work and fabricating stories with datelines that suggested he had been on the ground in cities where the stories had happened. But in fact, he never was. In the fall of 2001, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, New York Times reporter Jason Blair, then 25, was apparently going off the deep end and resorting to anything to get out of his assignments. You say your behavior was poor. Some people would say it was disgraceful. You were assigned to help write those thumbnail sketches of people who had died in the World Trade Center. You were asked to work on those, right? Right. You got out of it by saying you had a cousin who was killed at the Pentagon. Correct. A complete lie. A complete lie. Why would you do that? Here people are suffering, yet you make up a story that your cousin died to get out of an assignment. It seems so unconscionable. I wanted anything to get away from the Trade Center story. I emotionally just could not handle it. It was the talk of the trade. When I returned from Iraq and entered the newsroom the next day, nobody was thinking or talking about WMD or Iraq. He says this article contained his first fabrication. It was a last name. I had interviewed a guy who had been trading on the markets after the uh, September 11th attacks, and he refused to give me his last name. 
you know, I sort of felt that the story wouldn't make it in without a last name, and I just came up with one. If there was any indication of how serious the situation was, it was a staff-wide meeting held down the street from The Times at a 1,400-seat movie theater. The street was jammed with reporters from other papers and camera crews yelling questions. Paparazzi pranced in front of them. It was a zoo. Judy took a seat in the back, next to a friend on the business desk. She had a particular interest in the scandal, because two of the people on the hook for allowing Jason's writing to go unchecked for so long were the paper's top two editors, Howell Raines and Gerald Boyd, two men who were Judy's greatest allies in the newsroom. They had given her free reign, and Judy had taken full advantage. On stage, a business reporter spoke up with a question for Howell Raines. Was he going to resign? I gasped as reporters applauded. Resentment was palpable. Staff members lined the aisles, waiting their turn to complain. When a Metro editor took the microphone, the room got quiet. He laid into his bosses for doing nothing about several concerns he had flagged in Blair stories in the past. Howell and Gerald governed by fear. People feel less led than bullied, he declared. The staff no longer felt that editorial decisions were being made fairly or properly. At a deep level, he told them, sprinkling his indictment with words the paper couldn't print, you guys have lost the confidence of many parts of the newsroom. There weren't many people loudly defending Howell or Gerald. Witnessing the depth of my colleagues' fury, I was also wary of speaking out. I feared that they would interpret a defense as toadying up to senior editors who had let me run amok. I was silent as men I respected were torn apart, but I was heartsick for them and ashamed of my own cowardice. Judy turned to her friend. Can I go back to Iraq now? But as soon as Judy got back to Iraq, she got some information that would spell the end of her career. Haven't you heard the news? Howell Raines and Gerald Boyd had been fired. That's coming up next time on Infamous. And what was her side of the story? Do we have to come clean with readers about this coverage? I'd be like hungover and dejected. They had taken my 27-year prize-filled career and trashed it. My name is Valerie Plame. You shouldn't know that, but you do. Certainly what Judy was publishing ended up being untruths that helped yep. justify a war. Infamous is a production of Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment. It's created, executive produced, and hosted by Gabriel Sherman and me, Vanessa Gregoriadis. Shoshi Shmulovitz is our managing producer and editor. Lily Houston-Smith, Garrett Graham, and Grace Heerman are associate producers. Some of this reporting appeared in The Observer newspaper. This episode was written for audio by Heather Schroering and Rajiv Gola. It was sound designed and mixed by David Devereaux, recorded by Ewan Leidramuen, and fact-checked by Alia Farouk Sheikh. Campside's executive producers are Josh Dean, Adam Hoff, Matt Scher, and myself. Thank you to Campside's operations team, Doug Slaywin, Aliyah Papes, and Destiny Dingle. If you're enjoying Infamous, please rate and review the show. It helps us more than you know.